You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Well, we had ourselves a busy couple of days in spring training, so let's talk all about it on the latest Rico Bronia. How are we doing today? Evan Roberts, Pete Hoffman. We had Max Scherzer battling the pitch clock. We had multiple med injuries. We had uh, one of the rookies really make an impression over the last few days. And then we had the debut of Justin Verlander and Kodai Senga. Let's start with the injuries because the injuries are our biggest fear of spring training, especially when you look around and you see Tyler Glass now, who's going to miss a significant period of time. Uh, when you look and you see Gavin Lux, who tore his ACL and is missing the rest of the year. So I've said this before, we just got to survive spring training. We just have to find a way to get through the next three and a half weeks without a catastrophic injury. So I'm sitting there on Saturday. It was actually Saturday night because I DVR'd, not DVR'd, on the MLB app. I didn't start the Mets Saturday game until nighttime. They were taking on the Miami Marlins on Saturday, and it wasn't on SNY. It was a road game. So if you have the MLB app, they, they, they take away all the blackouts. So you can actually watch the Mets, the Yankees, whomever, even when they're not locally televised. So I sat down with my son. We were watching the Met game. Got to see Justin Verlander make his debut. And David Peterson got hit by a line drive. And he recovered, and he made the play. It was on Nick Fortes, the Marlins catcher. And the trainers came out. And my reaction always is this. In spring training, if the trainers come out, your ass is coming out the game. Because it's spring training. What are we doing here? Peterson stays in the game, gets the next two guys out, And then he reveals hours later, hey, I'm a little bit sore. So the Mets go give him x-rays. Luckily, the news is good with him. They labeled it a left foot contusion. So David Peterson is going to be very, very valuable to this team. Even if he isn't on the major league roster right out of the gate, he's going to make a bunch of starts. And more on that later because I tweeted this out a few days ago, but Tim Britton of The Athletic wrote this tremendous article breakdown of how the Mets could use their rotation six man throughout the year not the entire season but part of the year so we'll get to that in a little bit but David Peterson's important so luckily his x-rays are all clean it's a left foot contusion I think a left foot contusion means he has the boo-boo 
I think that's basically what it means. <laughs> he has a black and blue, and he's going to be fine. So Peterson's okay. Jose Quintana comes out of the bullpen on Sunday in the game against the Cardinals, and I actually watched only the first inning of the Sunday game, just out of curiosity with Kodai Senga. And we'll touch on Kodai in a little bit. So I didn't see Quintana pitch, but I'm I'm looking at the MLB app, and I checked it, I'd say like late in the day. I went out to Brooklyn, saw the Nets beat the Hornets with the family. So maybe it was like in the first quarter. I'm like, let me see how the Mets did. Let me let me check this out. And as soon as I saw Quintana pitched one inning, I got concerned. Because <laughs> Wait a second, Jose Quintana threw one inning? No. And obviously, he left with what they're calling, I guess, just side soreness. And that that can be a big deal, by the way. You know, I, I do warn you that side soreness can turn into a freaking oblique. That could turn into more of a major injury. So, fingers crossed with Jose Quintana. Remember, in his first spring training start, he got his ass handed to him. And last time on the Rico, I said, look, none of that matters unless he continues to get his ass kicked or there's some kind of soreness. Well, here's your soreness. Now, in the inning he pitched, he was fine. So it's not like he got rocked again. But the side soreness thing is a worry. And it's why you need starting pitching depth. And it's why David Peterson and Tyler McGill and Eliezer Hernandez and maybe Joey Lucchese at some point are all going to have to make starts for this team. It is very rare, very rare, that you get through a major league season in which you're not using seven, eight, nine guys. Rarely do you see a rotation get through with five guys. And it leads me to a fact that was in that Tim Burton article, that tremendous piece in The Athletic from Thursday, in which if you look at teams with older rotations, and the Mets certainly have an older rotation. They got a rotation with a bunch of guys in their 30s. The last time a rotation had four guys, 34 or older, each pitch 150 innings was the 2006 New York Mets. So the Mets are asking for a veteran rotation to do something that nobody's done in a very long time. And and the other weird stat was the last time a rotation had four guys qualify, I think for the ERA, uh, basically qualify to win an ERA title, which means you've thrown, I think it's 162 innings. The last time that's happened, you got to go back like 50 years. So the age of this rotation, and it's not just Verlander, and it's not just Scherzer, they get all the attention, but Carrasco's not young, Quintana's not young, it's a concern. You got four guys in this rotation who are older guys. So fingers crossed with Quintana, but let's be honest, it'd be surprising to get through a big part of this year without having to use not just one reinforcement, but a bunch of reinforcements. Luckily, Verlander is healthy for now. Scherzer is healthy for now. Verlander was fine in the spring training start. I, I guess what I was intrigued by with Verlander is nothing about his pitching, but more just seeing him in a Met jersey, seeing that windup, seeing 35, seeing that face with that dimple on his, what is that called? Is that like a clef or something? He paid, what's that called? Then you got the little, uh, uh, I think the dimple works. Is that what it is? It's it's a cleft chin, cleft chin. Yeah, whatever it is, the Vince McMahon thing, the butt on your chin, whatever it is. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean he's he's a fine looking gentleman, but it's really just seeing Verlander as a Met, just seeing it, and it was weird. 
I'm not going to lie. It's like seeing Max Scherzer as a Met for the first time. It's strange. You know, when you've watched a guy pitch for as long as Verlander's pitched, and obviously he's become known as a guy who pitched for two teams, and that's what you think of. You think of Verlander the Tiger, you think of Verlander the Astro. So to imagine him in a different jersey is just strange. But he was fine. He looked good. And what am I looking for? You know, when Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander pitch in spring training, obviously the pitch clock is a thing for everybody because everybody's getting used to it. So everybody's adjusting to that. But outside of that, it's really just get out of this thing healthy. That's what you're looking for. Um, One other thing about Quintana, by the way, and I guess this could be considered good. Obviously, if he misses a significant period of time, that's bad. The good is he's not pitching in the WBC for Columbia. So the Mets, who have so many guys going to the World Baseball Classic, a ton of guys, at least got to take one out in Jose Quintana. And as soon as there was any kind of injury, that was obviously going to happen. We saw that with Vladimir Guerrero with the Team Dominican. He's got a minor injury. He's out. So Quintana is now off the Colombian roster. And we wait to find out what happens. I think it's obvious if he misses time. Because remember, pitchers are on this calendar. So if he misses, let's say, a week and a half, that's going to make you miss the start of the year. Because you're building up yourself. So you get knocked off kilter by a week and a half, two weeks or so. He's probably starting the year on the injured list. First guy up is David Peterson. To me, it's not even a question. It's not. There's no competition. You know, I don't need to see how Tyler McGill looks in spring training, as well as he pitched at times last year. David Peterson is clearly the guy. So Peterson day-to-day should be fine. Quintana, side issue. We'll get more on that as the week starts. Verlander is healthy. Carrasco had issues with the pitch clock. Okay, fine. First start in. Get used to it. And as far as Cody Sanga is concerned, so I watched the first inning. And the number one thing that was on my mind with Senga, besides just seeing him, because very few of us have you know watched the tape from Japan to really watch this guy pitch, but the first thing that was on my mind, I have to tell you, with him more than anyone else was the pitch clock. Because, and it's a stereotype, but it's a stereotype that's true. Japanese pitchers work very slowly. I mean, it's just, it's a reality. You know, you Darvish and Shohei Otani, right off the top, look at their pace last year. Their pace was two of the worst in Major League Baseball. Go back to Daisuke Matsuzaka, not only from his days with the Mets, but even when he was good with the Red Sox, the guy took an hour and a half in between pitches. So it's it's just a thing. It's a strategy, I guess, from over Japan. So Kodai Senga is not only adjusting to all the other differences that you have between Japanese baseball and Major League Baseball, you're adapting to the pitch clock. Now, I can't tell you that his struggles early, and really his struggles were that he couldn't throw strikes. And again, I watched this first inning. He walks the leadoff hitter. He walks the second-place hitter. And then with 2-1 and nobody out, he falls behind Goldschmidt 3-1. and one. Now, I can't tell you that the reason he was missing the strike zone was the pitch clock, but Senga did admit after the game that was on his mind. That's all he was thinking about. He actually couldn't even enjoy the moment because he was so focused on the pitch clock. What I noticed with him in the first inning is immediately gets the baseball and immediately is trying to hear the pitch comp. That's what he's doing immediately on the man. He's like, okay, what is it? Okay. Got it. Shakes his head, gets into motion pitches and didn't have an issue in terms of barely making it or having any pitch clock violations. And the first inning I saw there were no pitch clock violations, but it worries me 
because one of the problems with pitch comp from last year is that if the place is loud, you had a tough time hearing and you'd have to kind of move your hand around and say, I can't hear you. Let's start over. Let's start the signs. Okay. Let's go to the physical signs. You don't have that kind of time anymore. So I like the addition of pitch com where the pitcher can decide and tell the catcher what pitch he wants to throw. Luis Severino raved about that at Yankee camp. Max Scherzer even raved about it a little the other day and said he's going to do that, not for every pitch, but big spot, clock's running down, hit the button. Catcher knows what's coming. So it's a great kind of last-ditch effort if you can't come together on signs and you're concerned about a violation, hit a button. Then you're telling the catcher what's coming. So I think that's great. But what I was worried about with Senga is every call was coming into his earpiece. He walks into City Field first week of April. He ain't going to hear a damn thing. He's not. City Field is a lot louder than freaking Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium. I'm sorry. It just is. I like Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium, but it's not rocking the way a major league ballpark's going to rock. So Senga walks the first guy, walks the second guy. Falls behind Goldie three and one. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be bad. This is just welcome to the majors, Kodai. Two on nobody out is Goldie and Arenado. Have fun. Three one pitch pops it up to shortstop. I had the game on mute and I just see Lindor look up into the sky and let it drop. They called infield fly. And I, I don't know if Lindor was like, I'm lazy. I actually don't want to catch this right now. It's spring training. I'm about to go to the WBC. Let me just let it bounce. It's an out and no one's going to advance. So it was either that or he lost it in the sun. I still haven't figured it out, but either way, one out. Then Nolan Arenado comes up. Not easy. And he gets Arenado. I think it was to fly out to right, if I'm not mistaken. Then he faces one of the guys that you're going to have to keep an eye on, one of the hotter prospects in all of baseball named Jordan Walker. Right? Jordan Walker is going to be, I don't know, rookie of the year candidate. Maybe he's going to go win the rookie of the year. And Jordan Walker's off to this tremendous start in spring training. He's been great. And Kodai Senga unleashed, at least for the first time that we realized, the ghost fork to strike him out. And it looked nasty. It looked nasty. Now, apparently, in the second inning, he gave up a home run, but I never saw it. So it didn't it didn't occur. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so he pitched the second inning. He gave up a run. Uh, that was the only hit he gave up. He didn't walk anyone else, so I guess it was a relatively clean inning besides the home run that he allowed. So all in all, like, fair debut. He's just has, he has so many things he has to adjust to. You know, Carlos Carrasco is just adjusting to the pitch clock. Max Scherzer is just adjusting to the pitch clock. And it's an adjustment, but everybody's doing it. Kodai Senga not only has to figure that out, which cannot be easy for a guy that takes an hour and a half in between pitches, but then he's just got to figure everything else out. Pitch calm, working with new teammates, a new baseball because the baseballs are different. Even the amount of days in between starts, his routine, language barrier. It's not going to be easy. And am I setting it up that he's going to get off to a tough start? I, I don't know. I mean, first time around the league, maybe he dominates. I just understand if he gets off to a tough start. You never know. I mean, Masahiro Tanaka came over, and I remember he burst onto the scene. Nobody could touch him. Hideo Nomo, nobody could touch him. So we have seen a lot of examples 
<clears throat> excuse me, of Japanese pitchers coming over and first time around the league. And no one has seen this before. Oh, my God. But he's got a good arm. He's throwing 97, 98. We saw a little bit of the ghost fork. Not a bad debut for Kodai Senga. But I guess I am going to go out on a limb and predict he's going to get off to a shaky start. Maybe that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's not really what we want to hear there, Evan, but thank you so much. And I will say this. I, I, I did – I watched the home run. I had – when I saw that he gave up a home run, I wanted to see how it looked because I wanted to see if he got, like, completely, like – guy just, like, murdered the ball. It was a, an okay. It wasn't anything too crazy. The guy pulled it, got down the line, home run. It wasn't anything too, too nuts. But I, I wasn't like, okay, the guy got – you know – it's still spring training, so he's working out on the kinks. That's the way I look at everything. But it wasn't like someone just like totally offloaded off. Him, I, you know? I'm more impressed by how he got out of that first inning. Because think about it. I know it's spring training and it's Roger Dean Stadium. This is his debut in American baseball. And he debuts by walk guys. Okay? And then he's facing two studs back to back. It's not like he got some easy break. He's facing Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. And he got both guys out and then strikes out Jordan Walker. I thought that was actually pretty impressive uh, for a real debut, a debut debut in American baseball. So, yeah, it's it's fine. Just stay healthy and learn the pitch clock, which is for everybody. I mean, this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And that gets us to Max Scherzer, who's also learning the pitch clock. I, I want to make something clear because I kind of ranted against Max Scherzer on the air the other day. I got no issue with Max Scherzer. My only issue is that he sucked in the playoffs. That that's that's it. And I guess my issue is that some Met fans just talk about him like he's done something for us, which other than a you know 20 regular season starts, he hasn't. And everything that comes out of his mouth is like, oh, this is great. I love Max Scherzer. He's amazing. He's this, he's that, he's this. Look, I want to love Max Scherzer too. I have a bad taste in my mouth, as we all should. He crapped the bed against the Braves and crapped the bed even worse against the San Diego Padres. But him manipulating the pitch clock, which he was bragging about after his first spring start, completely fine. There are going to be new kind of ways to game the system, right? New kinds of ways to play with the new rules. And spring training is a time in which we figure it out. So Max is sitting there bragging about, hey, I get that batter in the box at eight. I can make him wait till one before I pitch. And, and he's right. Of course you can. But the problem Max has to realize is that you eventually have to throw the pitch before it hits zero, <laughs> which happened to him a couple of days ago on a double play ball. Now watching that play, because I think one of the big reactions we all had, if you heard about it or saw it was, oh man, can you imagine this in a regular season game? Guy doesn't get the pitch off in time. Double play. It's taken off the board because it's a violation. We're all going to go nuts. You know what I would say? It's the same thing I said when I saw the clip. Get the pitch off before it hits zero, dude. Like, I I'm not railing against the rule. I'm railing against 
Max had the ball in his hands. He's on the mound. What are you waiting for? And then his answer, this answer, and we have audio of it, is just so, you know what? I'm not going to give you an opinion. I'm going to let you listen to the audio, and then everybody can form an opinion, and Pete and I can discuss. But, again, Max Scherzer throws a pitch after the clock hits zero. Pitch is hit into a double play. Umpire quickly rules. Violation, violation. Double play ruled off the board. Here's what Max had to say about the clock. And seeing how the umpire called it, I mean, it was on zero zero for a one count. I, want, I think that's one thing I also want to make sure we get cleared up on the rules. Is like you know, is, you know, if you look at a basketball uh, clock when it goes zero zero, like there's still another second on zero zero. So I want to make sure it's not zero zero. Like the moment it hit zero zero, or is there a little time on zero zero? Probably need to get a little clarification on that as we move forward. You need clarification, Max. Here's the clarification: throw that effing ball before it hits zero zero. Okay, that's the clarification. Do do we really need tenths of a second on the clock, Max? Is that what you're looking for? Throw the freaking ball before it hits zero. When it hits one, pitch. That's it. What are you shaking your head about, Pete? Don't defend him on this. I'm telling. I'm telling. No, but this is the reason why. I I knew this. There was the. Listen, you're right. Spring training is going to be chaotic. We're here for the ride. It's a circus. It's good. But there are so many issues with the clock. And again, we told we just saw the other day too where someone got called out. I think it was Severino was on the mound, or someone was on the mound, wasn't set, wasn't right. ready to go. He was like messing around, and the batter just took that as all right. Well, he's not ready. I don't have to be ready. Eight seconds are there. He's not ready. He's not in the box. They call a strike, even though the, the the Severino wasn't set. The point is, is like there's all these rules that people have to adjust to. And people have, you know. I know that it makes it sounds like it's clear. Ball players, the batter's got to be in there at eight seconds. Got to throw the ball before it hits zero. But if you're if you're starting the wind up before one, is that when is it? What, like soon as you these- no no, as soon as you start your wind up, it clocks off. You're good to go. So you could start that. The problem is you can't wait till zero. That's it. Yeah, that, that's it. Don't wait till zero. But, but but that's the thing, though. Is it's true, though. It's it's if you're gonna go to the exact point of it hitting, I I mean I don't know. Like I, in football, you snap a ball. There's always a delay, isn't there? I feel like yeah. You, you and I watch football. We we see sometimes it hits zero, and then the ball comes and snaps. It's like, well, how is that possible? Yeah, I think there's like a beat in the NFL because we see it a lot of times where the play clock will hit zero. We're screaming delay a game. Ball is snapped. Everything's fine. Uh, the, the batter stepping in the box at eight is a little bit different. It's a little bit different. And I think that one is less. It's it's tougher for us to see because, the first of all, a lot of times now with these games, we're not seeing the clock before eight. They're not showing it to us. In the games I've watched, the coverage has been so different. Like I, I told you, I was watching the Marlins telecast of Mets Marlins on Saturday for the first few minutes. I couldn't even find the clock. I don't know where the hell it was. And then finally, it looked like it was popping up at five. And, and a lot of times, they're not showing us the batter at eight seconds. They're showing us other things around a baseball stadium. Well, a fan shot, the shot of a manager, a shot of someone warming up in the bullpen. So that eight-second thing is more of a, for us as fans, it's going to be a trust thing because we don't see it a lot of the times. The, the pitching by zero or getting into your windup before zero is just simple. You got to do it before zero. Now, I don't think we have to get so cute about this. And 
I get that Max is looking for any kind of edge he can get, which is great, by the way. He should be looking for any kind of edge he can get. But don't get too cute about it. Just make sure you get your pitch off before one because you don't want to have yourself a pitch violation. And now what batters are going to do, it's interesting. Batters are also now going to try to get the, the pace back from the pitcher by getting set in the box early and getting ready and forcing the pitcher to get on the mound and do something. So there's going to be a lot of cat and mouse between the batter and the pitcher. I did, by the way, see in that Saturday game, because I've gotten this question, hey, how are you going to score a strikeout if there's a violation? And I've kind of brushed it aside. It's not going to happen. Don't worry about it. Well, on Saturday, David Peterson ended an inning with a violation strikeout. And so quickly I had to decide, you know, what the hell do I do? It's a violation strikeout. What do I put? So I came up with two ideas, by the way. All right. One idea was backwards K and a frontwards K. You put the two lines there. So it's like you put a line straight down and then the backwards K and then the, the regular K. But then I did it and I said, it doesn't look like anything. It looks like a tree. It just, what the hell is that? So then I settled for what I think most people are going to do. I put a regular K and a V on top of it for violation. So I think that's the answer for those scoring at home, that it's going to be a K with a V over it. Because I tried, hey, let's combine the backwards K and the frontwards K. It's perfect. Now it's like the... No, you don't like v- that? Well, you like the V better? The VK's the, the, the VK's the way to go. That's no question. That, that's the first thing that pops into my mind. Yeah, so you should have seen it. reminded me of when I was young and I was learning how to drive and I didn't know what hazards were. The hazards. I called it the double blinker. I was like, look at that double blinker. I'm a confused people. I'm making a left. No, I'm making a right. You don't know what I'm doing. And then my dad said, son, that's the hazards. You put them on and explained it to me, but yeah, my, my forward and backwards K was like the hazards while you're driving a car. So the one thing I will say about this whole Max Scherzer thing is uh, I don't even know if he really – I'm not saying that he doesn't care, but I think he's almost going above and beyond to make sure that – because he does seem like he's the cat and mouse game. He does want to have every single edge. It's, and it, it, dude, it's if you're, not, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, right? As they say, this yep. is not cheating, but you're trying to stretch the rules as much, yeah. much as possible. So he's trying to get her so that once the season comes, he'll be the most prepared, unlike maybe some others. Yeah, look, this is what this is about. I mean, that's one of the disadvantages a lot of these pitchers are going to have, and hitters to a degree, by going to the WBC, because the WBC isn't going to have a pitch clock. So you're kind of eliminating a week and a half of tinkering with these things. Uh, the different advantages or disadvantages when the truth is just go into the freaking batter's box. If you're the pitcher, just throw the damn ball. You know, 98% of the time, it's just not that complicated. And in the baseball I've watched outside of that violation in the Marlins Met game, which was a clear violation. It was weird for me to score that. I don't think there was any other violations in the game. And it just had a good pace. It was just a game that moved and it was a blowout. Because the Mets destroyed them, and that was great. I mean, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the fact that Mark Vientos hit a couple of bombs. That's what I really enjoyed. He had a single early on, 
against Jesus Lazardo, which is good to see because Lazardo's the kind of guy he's going to face. I mean, think about it. In the division, lefty, you're going to see him. The, the right-handed DH, whoever it turns out to be, he's facing Jesus Lazardo a handful of times this year. So right out of the gate, singles off of him. Then he hits a couple of just absolute bombs. And while Mauricio is getting all the attention, and I totally get why, and Brett Beatty is getting a lot of attention. And I certainly understand why. Like I've said from the top, Vientos is the guy to me who's got the best chance to make and put his imprint on this team by having a big camp while Darren Ruff twiddles his thumbs. Now, Darren Ruff's going to get the play soon. Once he's back and is playing, there is no Pete Alonzo for a while because he's uh, off with Team America in the World Baseball Classic. And there's going to be a lot of extra at-bats. So Darren Ruff's eventually going to play once he's cleared. And God forbid he has a big spring training. <laughs> then, then he'll safely get his right-handed DH job. Or he has a big spring training and some team trades for him, which I guess is the dream. But Vientos is not only hitting, but he's hitting lefties. And that's what you want to see. That's what you're looking for if you're Billy Epler. So... Vientos is off to a very good start. Beatty's off to a very good start. Mauricio's off to a very good start. But I still stand by the fact that Vientos has the best chance to make this team. Beatty also has a shot now, though. You know, I got a few emails about this in our little at uh, emailing the RicoB at gmail.com. What about Beatty? Can Beatty make this team? Does Beatty have a shot? Hey, here's what I, I wonder about. So Beatty is hitting, no doubt about it. And Eduardo Escobar is not. Eduardo Escobar, I think, is three for 17 so far in Mets spring training. Number one, how much does spring training or how much should we look at spring training for a veteran like Eduardo Escobar? What does it mean? Like, you're going to cut him? You're going to trade him off for nothing? Like, what are you going to do with Eduardo Escobar because of a bad spring training? I wouldn't do either, by the way. I wouldn't. That doesn't mean I wouldn't make Beatty my starter, but I'm, I'm going to just dump him? I'm just going to move on from him, and I'm going to do that based on a crappy March? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We all remember that last year he had a bad, bad year until September. I acknowledge that. But my point to you is March? Like, that's going to be the thing that makes you say, get rid of him? Now, I'm not a believer in getting rid of him. I'm a believer in making it work with Beatty, where he's got a lot of at-bats, and Beatty's hit. And he's starting to, to earn that. What I'm pointing out, though, is why should Escobar's struggles really impact this? Because we're talking about March struggles from a veteran player. I, I think sometimes we completely overrate what happens in spring training. And we especially do with veterans. He's also leaving, by the way. <laughs> he's also going to go to Team Venezuela, and who knows how long he'll be gone. Should that impact his status as the opening day or everyday third baseman? I, I don't think it should. What I think it should is Beatty's hitting should earn him a spot on this roster and then a chance to get more at-bats, some of which will be at third base, some of which will be at DH, some of which could be at left field. And that's the big one to me because the Mets do not have a lot of outfield depth. And I don't want to be a hypocrite here because I just said, what does spring training mean? Tommy Pham is making a terrible first impression because he's old for 15. Doesn't mean they should cut him. Doesn't mean it matters, but they don't have a lot of outfield depth. And we knew that no matter what Tommy Pham was doing 
in spring training. It doesn't matter. They don't because you're talking about Mark Canna, who should play a lot, but maybe not every, every day. You're talking about Brandon Nimmo, we still haven't seen here in spring training, and hopefully he plays every day and he's healthy. And Starling Marte, who hasn't played yet in spring training, who's not going to play every day early on because you're going to want to make sure he's healthy. So you are really going to need guys to step up in the outfield. And as I've mentioned a lot, Jeff McNeil could simply be that guy with Beatty playing third and Escobar playing second. That's completely fine. So I'm all for Beatty making this team. Love the ladies off. My main point is I don't think Escobar struggling in spring training can really change much for him. So if you're the Mets, though, and you've been hell-bent on really defense is going to be a main key, so that's really why we're talking like if Beatty and, and Vientos and these younger guys just defensively aren't ready, okay, fine. But you're saying had they earned themselves a spot because of where they're hitting. But if they're not playing, if you can't find enough at-bats for Beatty in the first 15 games, is it really – if you're the Mets – is it worth even having them up in the bigs? Well, I think for Vientos, it's it's pretty straightforward. You know, even though we've seen him play third base and first base in spring training, and I can't tell you how great he is defensively just based on that small sample size of what I've seen, but Mark Vientos has a clear role if he makes this team, and that is the right-handed DH. That's what he is, and I think that's – it fits. It's obvious. It's him instead of Darren Ruff. He doesn't have to play a lot of defense, so his defense doesn't matter. That's his role. The Beatty thing is a little bit more complicated. And obviously, I've thrown out a lot of different ways where you can get him at-bats, but you're right. It may not be consistent at-bats because I don't know if right out of the gate, the Mets are benching Eduardo Escobar. I don't necessarily see that happening. Where he could get at-bats, and I'm not rooting for this, obviously, is if Marte isn't ready to start the year. Because if Marte isn't ready to start the year, I'm not one to just say play Tommy Pham every day. I'm sorry. That's not me. That may be what they do. That's not what I would say. What I would say is stick someone in the outfield, probably McNeil, and have Beatty at third, Escobar at second. And there's your at-bats. So one thing that could really contribute to is there enough playing time for Beatty right out of the gate is the health of Starling Marte. If he's healthy and Nimmo is healthy, if everybody's pretty much healthy, like I've said at the top, I, I think he's going to have a tough time making the team. We were debating that when we were making our roster predictions. That's why I've been consistent that the young player with the best opportunity to make this roster is Mark Vientos because there's a clear, obvious role for him. There's a place for him. It is going to be really weird because SNY is televising it. In a couple of days, the Mets are playing a spring training game against Venezuela. And so Eduardo Escobar is on Venezuela. It's just, you know, we're going to sit there as a Met fan watching the game. It's not about who to root for because, you know, it's not like winning the games really matter, which we'll get to in a little bit. I compiled every spring training record the Mets have ever had in their history, and we'll see if there's any pattern with good spring trainings and winning, bad spring trainings and winning, bad spring trainings and losing. We'll take a look at that in a little bit. But it is going to be strange to see the Mets facing some Mets as basically the Mets are losing a million guys to this WBC. The guys who don't have jobs on the line, it's like, all right, so Lindor is getting his spring training with Team Puerto Rico. Okay, Alonzo's getting his spring training with Team America. But there are a couple of guys who I'm like, is it really wise to leave one of which 
is Elisar Hernandez. He's on the WBC. And I'm thinking, dude, you're battling for a roster spot. I I don't know. I'm being honest here. Is Buck and Billy going to look at how you pitched in the WBC and factor that into the decision? I don't know. It may not help you. So for the guys that clearly are going to be on the roster, Adam Adovino is pitching in the WBC. Brooks Raleigh is pitching in the WBC. Fine. Just get out of this thing healthy. I, I did read one of the Met concerns was Edwin Diaz, that they do not want Edwin Diaz pitching back-to-back days, and that's certainly a possibility in the WBC. I come with you with good news. If you've analyzed the World Baseball Classic schedule, which I have not done, I would never do such a thing, there aren't a lot of opportunities for him to pitch back-to-back days. The WBC is not boom, 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 boy. It's not every, every single day. And there's some really bad teams in the early groupings. So massive blowouts. For example, Team USA is playing Great Britain in their first World Baseball Classic game. World Great Britain? What? I mean, USA should beat the crap out of them, 18-0. It shouldn't be a contest. So there will be games, hopefully, where they're not going to need Edwin Diaz. But here's the negative. Here's the problem with all this. Edwin Diaz, of course, Puerto Rican. He's on the Team Puerto Rico. World Baseball Classic team, a team who has a legitimate chance to go on a run. We have to trust the manager. We have to trust the manager of the World Baseball Classic Puerto Rico team because they're the ones who decide how much Edwin's can pitch, how how much how often Edwin's going to pitch. Buck Showalter may make suggestions, but it's the manager who decides. And we all hate the manager of Team Puerto Rico. We all think he's a scumbag. We are, ah, scumbag's too harsh. I take that back. He's not a bad guy. He's just a villain. The manager of Team Puerto Rico in the WBC is Yadier Molina. No one can trust him. Nobody can trust that Yadi. But hopefully Edwin Diaz doesn't pitch too much. <laughs> that's all That's all you could say. But what could you do? A lot of teams are dealing with how, this. How did he get the job of a manager already? He, didn't he just retire? Because he's Yadi bleeping Molina. He's a god in Puerto Rico. I'll I'll never forget. Puerto Rico advanced to the WBC finals against the DR. Okay, they they played each other in the the World Baseball Classic finals. I'm trying to remember what year because I forget which years the WBC are. I know it was 06. I think it was 06, 9, 13, 17, and now 23. So let's say 23. The first one was Cuba, Japan. The second one was Japan, Korea. I think the third one was DR, Puerto Rico. Finals, I'm talking about. And then USA beat Japan five years ago. So that's your history of the World Baseball Classic. You got to fact check me on that. I'm not that confident. But I'm pretty sure that was the finals. Uh, Cuba lost to Japan in 06. Japan beat Korea for back-to-back titles in 09 at Dodger Stadium. DR beat Puerto Rico or Puerto Rico beat DR? I don't know who won. I think DR beat Puerto Rico. You better fact check me on this. I'm going to piss a lot of people off. And then USA beat Japan. I remember that in 2017, 2018, whatever year that was. So it's Puerto Rico against the Dominican. And I think Puerto Rico had some kind of dramatic victory to get there. And Yachty was asked about it. 
and Yadi Molina, and this sort of pissed me off, but then I respected it. I was very mixed about it. Yadi or Molina says, this moment is bigger than any baseball moment I've ever had, including hitting the game-winning home run in game seven of the 06 NLCS. And I paused when I first heard that. And I was like, hey, I'll go F yourself. It's the NLCS against my team. That's supposed to be your best moment. Then I realized, well, you know, I respect that. Guy really loves playing for uh, Puerto Rico. Guy loves playing in the WBC. It shows that even though I may not get into the event as much, or you may not get into the event that much, it shows that Yachty's into that event. And a lot of people are into that event. So Yachty takes Puerto Rico and the WBC very seriously. That's the only reason I told that story. I was just defending why he's the why he's the manager of the team. So Tim Britton wrote this great piece in The Athletic on Thursday. And people think I have too much time on my hands. Tim Britton was able to break down, looking at the Mets schedule, how often it would behoove them to use a six-man rotation. I have mentioned many times, I'd go six-man right out the gate. I wouldn't F around. You have enough pitchers. You got veterans all over the place. We talked about how old this rotation is. Senga, who's not old, is getting used to the adjustment of being in a five-man rotation. So I've been a, comp- a proponent of doing it all year. Tim Britton lays out with great reporting and talking to the Mets that their plan is to institute six-mans at points during the season. So, for example, starting on April 20, 25th, the Mets play 26 games in 27 days. That would be a stretch of time where, based on the schedule, Mets go six-man. From August 1st, Through August, they play 22 games in 23 days. That would be another period of time to institute a six-man rotation. And then in September, they play 17 straight games. Another time to implement a six-man rotation. What's awesome but also obvious is that we can plan, and Tim Britton can lay out a plan, and Buck Showalter can lay out a plan all you want. There are so many factors that can F with that plan. Obviously injuries. That goes without saying. Number two, guys being ineffective or guys being really effective. Or rainouts. You know, this schedule that we just cited could look very, very different. The Mets open the season with no rainouts because they're playing in two domes. But over the stretch of the season, you never know when a doubleheader gets added. You never know when games are rained out. But it does make sense, in theory, especially with Verlander and Scherzer, that you find time throughout a season to get these guys extra rest. And we went over these numbers not too long ago. I guess it was a few Ricos ago about how both guys have fared with an extra day. And they've been great. They've been fine. It's funny, because of off days in baseball, because of rainouts, you're pitching with an extra day of rest more times than not. It's not as if when you pitch with five days rest, which is an extra day of rest, obviously, that it's a rare occurrence. That's actually the most common thing you're going to do. Where you run into trouble, as Britton points out, you run into trouble when you have seven days and eight days, and it becomes a longer stretch of time. So the Mets are going to meticulously plan this thing out. The baseball gods will laugh at them because – Things will occur, like Jose Quintana feeling soreness in his sides that change everything. But it's clear. The Mets have to be careful 
with these veterans that they have. And, and what's great, sort of great, is that you've got guys who deserve an opportunity. David Peterson deserves to be able to make 15 starts this year, maybe more. And he probably will make more based on injuries to other guys. Even Tyler McGill deserves that opportunity. Joey Lucchese, removed from Tommy John's surgery, is going to deserve that opportunity. So even if we're struck with bad luck, bad injury luck, I think the Mets are equipped to deal with it. And that's not something I would have said three, four years ago with the rotation depth that they have. I, I like their rotation depth. It's not perfect, but I like it. Who is the guy, though, on the 26-man roster who cleans up the mess if a starting pitcher craps the bed? Last year, Trevor Williams had that role. Who has that role this year? It's not going to be David Peterson, who would clearly be their best option because they want him starting every five days in the minor leagues. Is it Tyler McGill? Probably not, for the same exact reason. Is it Joey Lucchese? Probably not. That's why I leaned when we made these roster predictions to LSR Hernandez, because he's probably a guy who you have on the major league roster, cleans up a mess of a starter, gets pounded, and you're not as committed to needing him to pitch every five days down at AAA. But that's a big spot, man. It really is, because that kind of stuff happens more times than you can plan, more times than you realize. Look back at last year. It wasn't always just a guy having a bad start that led to your long man coming in early. Taiwan Walker left early with an injury a couple of times. Carlos Carrasco left early with an injury a couple of times. And you need someone to come in and kind of save the day. So that's a very, very important role that's still being battled upon here in spring training. As you watch these games, though, keep this in mind. Winning and losing means nothing. Okay, means nothing. I went back and looked at the history of this franchise and how they've done in spring training. And I wish I could give you some like grand conclusion I've come up with. Like, all right, you go 15 and 15, it's perfect. That guarantee nothing means anything. Like 1962, they were 12 and 15, which is respectable. Then they went out and had the worst team ever. 1963, they were 15 and 12. Not bad. They sucked. Uh, 1968, they were nine and 18. Okay. They were pretty terrible. The 1969 Mets went 14 and 10. So reasonable record. Uh, the 73 team that won the pennant went 11 and 13. So they were under 500. The 86 team, greatest Met team we've ever had 13, 13 and one. They had a 500 season. We were very good in 1988. A year they won the division, 19 and 10. Uh, let's see. 1993, the worst team money could buy, 15 and 14. 1996, a 90-loss season, 16 and 12. 2000, we won the pennant, 14 and 12. 1999, 15 and 16. This is it, it means nothing. <laughs> The conclusion I've come up with is it means nothing. If I had to come up with any conclusion, actually, you know what? I'll give you one. When you're slightly above average, that's a good spring training. You know, when you're you're good, you're not too good, that could mean you're about to have some success in the regular season. You know, 2006, 16 and 14. That's the sweet spot. 
that's that's where you want to be just a little bit above 500 so i guess that's what we're rooting for you know we don't want to win too much want to win just a little bit get get the taste of wins but you don't want to waste these w's in march that's what i've learned from this so so don't chase the vision in spring got it yes don't, don't, in the do spring training, right yeah don't chase it means nothing the the best example i could come up with it's not even in baseball it's in the nfl was the browning nagel year the Jets went 5-0. and Browning Nagel looked like he was freaking Johnny and Nitus. And I think the Jets followed up with a 3-13 and season. So they won more games in the preseason than they did in spring training. <laughs> so you know what you can do with the spring training record? You can wipe the floor with it. I did come up with the answer, though, to the question. Do you remember what the question was last week, Pete, that I needed to answer? Oh, yes. Uh, what is your record at games you attended? So I want to make something clear. I do not have the record, but I have the amount of games. I can give you that answer. And while I may be off by one or two, because you never know, my my chart keeping that I've done over the years, cards subject to change. There can always be a mistake. So I've added up. Here are the numbers I have. I'll give you the information. I got the amount of games I've been to at City Field. The amount of games I've been to at Chase Stadium. So we can add that up for the amount of Met games I've been to. And then the amount of games I've scored. I do have that list. Every game I've ever scored. And that includes spring training, regular season, WBC, postseason. And it's not that crazy, by the way. For anyone listening, oh, this guy's freaking. You know what? I count at the end of the year how many games I scored. And I freaking write it down. That's it. Then all I do is add up the numbers. Ain't that complicated? And I started it at a young enough age, Pete, where it's not like I was doing all this work later in life. Like, I'd say 1998. I started saying, hey, I should count how many games I scored this year. And I wrote it down. And you keep adding it up, and we have a total number. So, do you want to guess, Pete? <laughs> um. Okay, so we're going back to what was your first game you went to and scored? So the first game I scored was back in 1992. I started scoring games in 1992. I was eight years old. Um, so figure 92, 02, 12, 22. That's 30 plus years, 30 years of scoring games. Whew. All right. It, it, I feel like I'm going to be very under here, but 700. Oh, come on. 700? Way under. <laughs> Pete, in 2009, I scored 209 games, which is a record, by the way. 209 games? <laughs> yes. In 2009? In 2009, I scored 209 games. So you're not close. Put it that way. 700. Jesus. So, those, so we're talking not just Mets games then. You're talking about... Yeah, when we're looking at the amount of games I've scored, it's everything. You know, it's it's every. I'll give you the answer. So, I've been scoring games for thirty years. This is going to be my thirty-second year of scoring. So, I got the number. Let me divide it by thirty to see what I'm averaging per year. It's not that high of an average per year. It's not two hundred. That's for sure. Uh, I have scored two thousand five hundred and ninety-nine games in my life. Holy my god! Which, if you divide it by thirty, <laughs> is eighty-seven games a year. It's not that crazy. And I, by the way, I kill that every year. I think last year I scored about 140 games. That'd be my guess. About a buck 40. 
That is, I mean, God bless you. I I don't even, I have trouble scoring my kids' game, like my little league <laughs> game. For like, and those go six, seven innings max. Ugh. I get you. So at City Field, I, I don't have a record. I apologize, but I'll tell you the total number. Uh, park opened in 2009. So we're in 2023. 2020 of throwouts. So how many years of City Field could I have been to at games? 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 21, 22. So that's 13 years, right? I think that's what I came up with. Yeah. So, I uh, mean, I just want to see how this averages out. Eh, that's reasonable. I've been to 492 games at City Field. 11 of them postseason games. All 11 postseason games. Because that's all they've played, if my math is correct. You've got... The two against the Dodgers, the two against the Cubs, the three against the Royals, which is seven, the one against San Francisco, which is eight, and then obviously the three they just played against San Diego, 11. So 492 games at City Field and at Chase Stadium, 837. So I got a lot of work to do to catch up to Chase Stadium. So if you add that up, 837 plus 492. I've been to 1,329 Met games. And if each game is three hours, that's 3,987 hours. And if you divide that by 24, I've spent 166 days at City Field slash Shea Stadium. What the hell have I done with my life? Well, can I ask you a serious question, though? You do have a milestone coming up in eight games. Oh my 500th game at City. Yeah. How are you going how are you going to celebrate that? That's a great question. I should have a big party. <laughs> you really should. I mean, they the Mets should have a party for you. I know. They should <laughs> celebrate me all the money I've handed over to them for 15 years. <laughs> yeah. So uh, those stu- numbers, I would love to give you a win-loss record. I'd love to. I don't even know how I go about doing that. I'd have to like fa- that would be work. You know, Having these numbers isn't work because I've always kind of collected it over the years. But to go back on the 492 games at City Field and see their record, that'd be a lot of work. But I'll, I'll make you a guess. It's probably right around 500. That'd be my guess. Like It's probably average, I think. Because think about it, and not just the years at Shea, but certainly the years at City. The Mets have had more bad years than good years. We've had some good years. But, but think about the City Field era. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. The first six years under 500. Right off the top. Some of them further under 500 than others. But right off the top, the first six years at City Field under 500. 15 and 16. Ooh, an anomaly above 500, right? 17 and 18 back under 500. So eight of the first 10 seasons at City Field, they finished under 500. 2020, we weren't there, but... Under 500. 2021, under 500. (laughs) And then obviously last year, 101 wins. So if my math is correct on that, that would mean the Mets have had 10 losing seasons and only four winning seasons in the 14 years of the City Field era? Think about that. That's, That's freaking insane. 15, 16, 19, and 22. That's it. The rest of it, Pete. They've been an under 500 baseball team in the city field era. 
And you wonder why Mets fans are so upset at life. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Not right. I mean, this is why we're negative. For that reason. I, that's it. I, yeah. Well, listen, that's why I thank God Steve Cohen's here. That's all it comes down to is things are turning. I, I, I still feel well, that way. If the Mets have a winning season this year, which they better, that would be back-to-back winning seasons, which is something they have not had since 15 and 16. And before that, 7 and 8. 6, 7, and 8. 5, 6, 7, and 8, I guess. So back-to-back winning seasons is a rarity. Obviously, back-to-back playoff seasons is a rarity. We've only seen that twice in the franchise's history. So, yeah. So my record at Chase Stadium is not good, and my record at City Field is not good. Uh, 11 playoff games at City, 19 at Chase Stadium. So that's 30 playoff games. Hopefully, we can really increase that number in 2023. Any thoughts, comments, or worries about the Mets? Of course, you can email us, thericob at gmail.com. Uh, next time on the Rico, obviously more on everything going on in spring training and some thoughts and a debate on radical realignment. It's something I have feared my entire life, and I'll lay out all the reasons why it sucks. But if you love it and you want it, obviously we will hear your side as well. We appreciate you listening. I'll be with Craig throughout the week at 2 o'clock. Pete Hoffman with Tiki and Tierney. Thank you for listening and downloading Rico Bronian. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronian podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.